just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to Spectator's Books Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Piers Torday, the children's writer who's shot to international superstardom with his Last Wild trilogy, and who's now two books into a new trilogy, began with The Lost Magician, and his new book is The Frozen Sea, which is a wintry sort of tale and appropriate for this time of year. Piers, welcome. Tell us a bit about The Frozen Sea. What's what's this new trilogy about and how does it differ from the last one? Well, essentially, in 2016, when by most people's reckoning, the world seemed to go a bit weird, not least of all, lots of celebrities dying without giving us due notice, but more fundamental shifts in our perception of where the world was turning and the political consensus, unpredictable events. I found myself taking refuge in nostalgia and I reread The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, a book I'd loved as a child and kind of got me into reading as much as any other text. And I was struck by a couple of things. I was struck by how well it stood up as a story today, as a narrative, as an adventure against books like Dark Materials and Harry Potter. It's a very... Dark Materials is very much against Narnia. It's very much against Narnia. But I, much as I love his Dark Materials, I would argue that Lion, Witch and Wardrobe is a considerably shorter um, <laughs> and in places just as thrilling. And C.S. Lewis has fallen out of favour recently for various reasons. One is people take against the overt kind of proselytising and kind of very heavy Christian allegory that to me as a child reader was went completely over my head. I may have detected it on some subconscious level. And the other reason I think is his treatment of women and the fact that at the end of the last battle, Susan is not allowed to yeah, join She gets women. some sticking plasters or something. She gets some magic, it's, magic it's, gift. Or yeah, I mean, it's it's you could argue that it's because... Susan is just growing up and she's into lipstick and boys and therefore she's going on to actually a, a good life and then the children are killed in a train crash. So in a way I think she gets a better deal. She's the one who's left alive at the end of the Narnia stories. But I can also understand why people feel you know, resentless treatment of women. But there was another thing that struck me that I never thought about, which of course that when he wrote these stories, Lewis himself was in a state of great desolation. The Inklings, his writing group was kind of falling apart. His theology was being called out by a young female scholar who caused him great upset. Tolkien's friendship had disappeared. His brother was an alcoholic, drinking himself to death. And it was the Second World War. And I got a very strong sense reading this book that Narnia was also about trying to create a sense of hope in a time when both personally and perhaps in the broader sense there didn't seem to be much hope on the ground. And I found that really intriguing and I began thinking, because lots of people were bewailing the end of times in 2016 and still are bewailing the end, end of times. Yeah, it's taking, taking its time about It's taking it, its time yeah. coming. But that when you, when you write for children, I'd, you don't, I don't have a particularly a, precisely a moral duty, but I think the exploration of hope and is quite an important theme to grapple with. Because whilst I don't think children are bemoaning the end of the world, and are not following every, you know, political gaff or a horror story. I think they're acutely exposed and conscious of the news cycle 
and everything from you see the children protesting against climate change. If you just mention Donald Trump in a primary school, you get a huge, you know, gales of laughter. I remember my, my then five-year-old bursting into tears on the morning after Trump was elected mm. when he said, what happened? And I said, Donald won. And yeah. he just absolutely, and I thought, God, I've indoctrinated him. You know? yeah. <laughs> and I don't know whether it is indoctrination, but they, they are, I think they do pick up on the sense of change and anxiety that's happening in the world at the moment. And so I wanted to see if I could take that Lewis framework of a portal into another world that then gives you a sort of, gives me the writer in a sense, a kind of playground with which to explore these themes more freely than if I had to in a sort of literal sense through through fantasy, just as Lewis does. And so I decided to do something I've never done before, which is really use The Lion, the Witch and Wardrobe, not just as an inspiration, but more as a kind of handrail for my story as it weaved its way up through the imagined mansion, so to speak. And so the first book, The Lost Magician, is about four children who leave London at the end of the war, not the beginning, because their home's been damaged by a bomb in the Blitz, and they go to stay in a big house of an old professor, only my professor's a woman, and they discover not a wardrobe, but a magical library. And this library has three shelves that lead you to three different worlds. One is the reds, as in this book has been read, and that's where all sort of story characters go to live once they've been told. The other is the unreads, the unreads being the facts that you find in a library. Unread, why? Because so many are yet to be discovered. And the third is the rather more ominous never-reads, which is revealed, whose purpose is revealed later in that, in that story. And essentially the children find a kind of fairy tale, fantasy world of story characters that they recognise from fairy tales and myths and even Victorian literature who are up against a kind of war for territory against the kind of silver robots of facts. And it's about... I think what I wanted to really explore is that very clear sense that objective truths and facts no longer carry that solid weight that they used to in the in the public discourse. They just don't land. You can tell people things that are true and objectively true and people just shrug. Whereas what is still powerful and has always been powerful is feeling and identity. And I wanted to explore that how that works in stories which are in themselves, you know, lies and fables. Whereas the you know, without going too heavy for children, but getting them thinking about how they perceive facts and and stories. Yeah, and I mean, are we sort of team red or team unread in all this? Mm. I think I'm trying to be team neither. I mean, the story, the story characters seem at first to be very appealing. There's Tom Thumb, the oldest fairy tale character ever told, and the unreads appear to be very unattractive. There's a sort of glass robot queen of them like the Jadis the White Witch and Lana Witch and Wardrobe. But Tom Thumb turns out to have some rather unpleasant prejudices of his own, like old story characters tend to do, and is not entirely trustworthy, as story characters often tend to be, especially old ones. And what is clear, I hope, in the story is that the, the children's path through this is has to be about as much looking to the future as it is about relying on the old stories of the past and about creating their own stories. But it's also, I suppose, about, I think, just how we underestimate the power of the old stories to move to move people. Yeah, I mean, with these old stories, actually, uh, I mean, in the Frozen Sea, you know, where the, where we return to this this land of folio where mm. the story characters live, 
you do get, you know, some, I, I found myself thinking as a child reader, maybe wouldn't have, you know, as, as various characters appear in the background, and say, are they still in copyright? Is he allowed to do, you know, did you have problems with that? Could, could you go, no, oh, right, I, you mentioned... And I really don't. And I sort of feel very, I feel very quite strongly that you've got to be able to write about these characters and these stories because they're real, they're part of children's lives. And so in The Frozen Sea, which takes the story on and is set actually in 1984, a date I chose for lots of reasons, not the obvious correlation with the uh, Orwellian date, but also it's the date of the first Apple computer, because this book is about the impact of technology on how we perceive stories and facts and how we spread those things and share them and how they kind of inculcate belief. Yes, the story world is slightly ahead of ours, in a sense, isn't it? They've all got something like iPhones. Like a stamp stone, a a magic stone. It's a magic stone, but it has effectively the properties of an iPhone. (laughs) All these characters ignoring each other and just Um, walking on the street. And there's a moment at the end when Mole and Ratty from Wind Wind in the Willows are freed of the control of this kind of black stone on their wrist and they rip it off and go back to messing about in boats. Wind in the Willows, I think, is actually out of copyright. But the point is I'm just referring to them briefly as passing characters. I think if I created a whole storyline about Mole and, and Ratty, I'd be in trouble. But I think if you create a world of fictional characters, it would be absolutely bizarre if it stopped in 1870 when the book is set in <laughs> 1984. Uh, so, and I think, you know, if I did... An, you, can't next, have, you can't have a cameo from Harry Potter. Well, in the next one, I fully intend to mention Harry Potter because, again, it would just be... Because the next one's set in the future for yeah. me. It would be absolutely extraordinary not to. But please rest assured, J.K. Rowling's lawyers, I have no intention of building <laughs> a storyline around any characters from the Pottermore Universe, Inc., but of course, you can refer to these things. You know, I'm not a book is not the BBC. I don't have impartiality. I don't have to say other other magical wizarding characters are available. <laughs> you know, I don't. And and also, you know, I mean, of course, the book, in a sense, by making stories about stories, you could. It's a bit about intertextuality, and it's a bit meta. And I'm obviously very careful with children not to go too far down that road. I'm not playing a high stake. I'm not doing a Jasper for. I'm, I'm not doing a high stakes literary game. But it's to try and create a world in which they feel... I always feel strongly when, when, when they're writing for children. It's about not forgetting that even though they're not aware, you must be aware you're writing in a tradition because they pick up on that subconsciously with all the other books that they're reading. And therefore, to kind of just pretend that there hasn't been this whole back catalogue of other stories similar to your one is just silly, because there is. I mean, I think I was going to say... The- even with Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe, there is a sort of argument that it's obviously, I mean, it you know, is Christian proselytising, but at the same time, it's, you know, he's borrowing the structure of a myth, isn't he? It's a, it's another... It's it's the Fairy Queen. And, yeah. uh, and that's what he's, you know, it's the it's the Fairy Queen. It's also the George MacDonald Fraser kind of romances that he grew up with, knights in armour and ghosts and phantoms. It's also E. Nesbitt, a favourite writer of his as a child, who actually... There's a wonderful short story by E. Nesbitt, the name of which temporarily escapes me, but it's in a it's in a collection called The Enchanted Mirror, and the story is about a girl who, in a spare room at her aunt's house, discovers a magical wardrobe which leads to a secret railway platform that transports her to a magical world, thereby effectively, if we're going to talk about copyright, <laughs> um, preempting the two of the biggest children's franchises of the last hundred years. So all these things are retellings in their own way. And uh, to be fair to C.S. Lewis, I think he was as much preoccupied by essaying the fairy queen and looking at kind of medieval fantasy and the tropes of that 
for young children as he was about the Christian stuff. That was just, you know, this is a man who didn't convert to Christianity till 1926, memorably in Whipsnade Zoo when he saw a sort of real Aslan-like lion. But it, it was so it was very present in his thinking. But I think as a as a as a storyteller, it's much more complex story than I think the modern take on Lewis, which is just it's a sort of it's a bit of a bullying Christian allegory, which I just, I don't find it to be at all, even though that is clearly there. As a sort of practice, I mean, I mean, I know that you read a lot in schools, you know, as well as obviously you know touring your own book. You do you do reading to children, and as a sort of practitioner and writer and someone who's very much at the coalface of you know children how they read what is your take on the the effects of technology on children's attention on literature i mean i do you have the sort of unreservedly doomy feeling that that you're in competition with candy crush and minecraft and no no i mean i think reading as a pastime has always been in competition with something and let us not forget that when reading was first introduced as a pastime, uh, people weren't particularly wild about it. And several people lost their lives in rather theatrical, dramatic ways for doing, for suggesting that it might be. I think there are many benefits to technology. There was a recent report that said boys take reading on screens. It's helping boys who are reluctant read. I don't really like that phrase, but reluctant readers. It's helping them discover more books. My personal anecdotal experience of children and screens is that particularly today's children are sort of, as it were, digital natives. They're growing up surrounded by screens. So they're, they're neither particularly a novelty, neither are they something to be fit. They're just a fact of life. And that for many children, a book, which these days in the booming children's publishing market are often beautifully produced, illustrated things, can be amongst many children's few actual pose- owned possessions, not shared. You can't be bullied on a book. No one can send you messages. No one tells you off for reading a book. Generally, it's, it's encouraged. And it's your, it's your thing. Whereas actually, because of the pervasiveness of screens now in the classroom as well as at home, it's not. You tend to see iPads and phones are for gaming, messaging or teaching. So actually, the book is a kind of relief. It's not, it's not, it's not for any of that. I think my, my concern with it more is, and what I'm trying to explore in the book is, I hope that the frozen she sows there, you know, because our, there's a the frozen sea follows a traditional quest narrative. The jumping off point is the silver chair, which is my other favourite Narnia book, partly because it's so very weird, and is about this subterranean world, which is less a Christian idea, but really going from Plato's cave, the kind of world, the upside. It's it's also like the upside down in Stranger Things. It's that our our other world reflected. In a, in, a, in a different light, similar, similar but different. And what I really want to explore is not specifically is technology a moral bad, because I think that's a ridiculous argument, you know, TV, radio, whatever, it's here to stay, it's part of life, and it, there's many benefits with it. But I think what we are becoming more aware of is there's huge power handed to someone who controls that technology and what are they controlling it for? And also, and perhaps something that's more interesting to explore in a book... It's a funny surveillance state you've created. It's, it's a kind of folio, surveillance yeah. state. But also what I'm interested in is those kind of things that animate stories which aren't really just the kind of, kind of cold struts of an intellectual argument, but something more abstract, which is, where is the internet? It doesn't exist as a space, yet it does exist. It's these huge servers in some data centre in Nevada... 
And when you think of all these stories that we've been talking about, not to mention memories, not to mention discussions of the stories, they're all, they exist in some kind of physical state, and yet that's not really part of our real world in the way that perhaps a library is or an archive is. And so there's that one sense of so much shared experience being kind of operating out of human sight and yet impinging human reality on a sort of minute-by-minute basis. So I wanted to just explore the kind of texture of that. And this idea of this underground kingdom seemed to seemed to work for that. But the other thing I did want to explore is when we rely so much on technology, how it affects our own consciousness and our own humanity. The most simple illustration of that is the, the oft many-told anecdotes of the long-distance truck driver who follows Google Maps and nearly sends the lorry over a cliff when he could perfectly see that the road leads to a cliff. But there's, it's not computer says no, it's absolutely the opposite. It's computer says yes. Whatever the computer says must be right. And there's numerous examples of people following directives from their phone, even when it goes against their common sense, what's, what's in front of them. And I am a bit concerned when I think about children's imagination because I think what is new is to be never be able to switch off. Never be bored. Never be bored, because I know as a child that my desire to play, write, make up came from just really being left alone with nothing to do in the middle of the countryside, which I know sounds to many people today like an immense privilege, and it absolutely was. But immense privilege can also be stultifyingly dull. And so you make up your own stories and you make up your own worlds. And I think if you can always turn something on and access music, games, things. It's, it's, it feels like a luxury, but it's also a kind of suffocating luxury. And so where is that space for really fresh human thought and independent thinking that will always be our, I, I guess, our salvation out of any crisis if either that thinking is entirely directed by forces we don't really understand or there's no space for us just to generate our own ideas? Having raised those concerns about the sort of threats to the chance for children to let their imaginations run freely. I mean, you did say children's publishing is booming. Why do you think we are going through this phase when the publication of your basic dead tree books for children is such a kind of, you know, flourishing sector of an industry that many people thought might just disappear altogether? The simple answer to that is J.K. Rowling. Before J.K. Rowling, children's books were pretty much in the doldrums. There had been, obviously, Roald Dahl had been a considerable success. It's worth bearing in mind that Roald Dahl, some of Roald Dahl's publishing success at the time was nothing like some of the success of his his predecessors in the noughties and since. It was good, but it was just children's books. So those predecessors pre- you're talking about, people like Enid Blyton and... and yeah, or Eva, Eva Ribbitson or people like that. And, you know, Philip Pullman was not selling books in the 90s. They were, he was writing them. They weren't particularly selling. It took a long I time. I someone say that the... His dark materials was his kind of slight last roll of the dice. Yeah, I believe it was. I don't want to be speak out of turn, but I believe it was his. Pretty much, as far as his agent and publisher were concerned, was the final roll of the dice, which perhaps is why it's so wonderful, because there's so much weight hanging on it. But that doesn't even really take off as a, as popular book till till the noughties. What J.K. Rowling does, in a way that will never happen again, it was a combination of circumstance, public mood absolutely the genius inception of the story, a brilliant publishing 
you know, masterclass in how to release a book, how to build excitement with deals and news of deals that had never been done before. You know, when the uh, Harry Potter rights sold to America for a large amount of money, it was a page two story in The Telegraph. And that was the first time a children's publishing story had had made that kind of uh, news coverage. And, And what she did in the last decade, what those books did was create a book a series of books that are now more widely read by young people in the West than the Bible used to be. And I know that sounds like an odd comparison, but it's really fundamental because there are people today whose moral universe is dictated by whether they're a Slytherin or a Hufflepuff or a, you know, that it, it informs them as much as any kind of sense of the kind of old, old morality texts. And so that then creates, in turn, creates a landscape where children publishing is suddenly, these stories are seen as incredibly important. Also, in a weird way, they are quite, well, not as sort of textual in that, you know, the, the yep. Jesus story is sort of in Harry Potter. Absolutely. But, but also she's pulled in so many of the sort of dusty tropes from previous children's stories. You know, it's a kind of compendium she, almost. She's done exactly what C.S. Lewis did. C.S. Lewis raised medieval literature, Victorian children's literature, the world of myth and fairy tale, which he was steeped in. And J.K. Rowling does exactly the same. Only she has, you know, another 50 years or so to draw upon. And she pulls it all together. And I'm always amazed when people sort of criticise J.K. Rowling for this as if somehow fantasy was something that was worked on a basis of entire original conception each time. The whole appeal of fantasy is that it a good story feels fresh and different, but the joy of it is it's drawing on tropes and old myths that you recognise, so you feel it's a familiar land underneath. And so that's I think that's the real reason, because then that also allows the space for Pullman, which is the sort of grown-up Harry Potter, if you like, I suppose, is how that's become to be seen, because it's dealing in really quite weighty ideas, obviously about the existence of God and so on. And the other thing I think, the reason I think children's publishing is booming is as literary fiction, I think by necessity to cope with modernity becomes more and more experimental because it's trying to find a way of telling stories that represents the fragmented age. There is a sort of modernism all over again. It's modernism all over again, and we're back in Ulysses' territory. And so there's an absence of very familiar, strong narratives, and children's stories always offer. Even though I hope some of the good ones are moving the form on, they do offer very strong narratives. And one in four books sold in the high street is a children's book, and I don't believe they're all being read just by children. And I don't. That means people are being infantilized. I just think children's books always offer... It's like why I read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe in 2016. They are a, a sort of haven in a storm. They offer comfort because the way we treat subjects is not super nuanced. They offer sometimes clarity as well. What got you started? Because you were working in the theatre for many years before you wrote The Last Wild. The Last Wild was the first in that trilogy, mm, yeah. wasn't it? I mean, was it... Did you <laughs> go... J.K. Rowling has shown me the way. Did you? What, uh, what made you want to write for children? You don't have children uh, yourself. No, a little. It was really I had an idea for a story. We were getting the first signs of the kind of climate crisis, particularly around biodiversity, and so the first reports that we'd lost, you know, an astonishing, you know, since just before my birth in 1970, you know, up to 60% of wildlife. And I'd grown up in the countryside. And it was you know, in the 80s, there was a reasonable amount of wildlife, nothing like our grandparents would have experienced, but a reasonable amount. And I was acutely conscious, actually, that, that there was a real change taking place. And so I thought I'd write a story about it, and I just reread Animal Farm. And I was suddenly intrigued by the idea, actually, what if Animal Farm, rather than being 
a sort of allegory about Stalinism, had actually been about a genuine animal revolution, animals claiming, you know, reclaiming the world from humanity. And that began to evolve into The Last Wild. Anyway, I was very excited by the story. I had no idea it was going to be a children's book. And then I acquired an agent, and the first thing she said was, talking animals, children. And she's right. So Ro- I think Ro- Ro- Roald Dahl's line somewhere about before he ever wrote Charlie in the Chocolate Factory about saying, ah, oh, Rush Children's book's fucking talking duck. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I kind of, at first I kind of bridled against this and I thought, I don't write a children's book. And then, of course, I got to think J.K. Rowling, Philip Pullman, some wonderful children's books. And then the more I got into it, I actually realised it is, they are wonderful to write for because children really do read books. And there's lots of concerns about literacy and so on ongoing as ever uh, as there have been since Aristotle and I'm sure we'll be worrying about children's literacy in a thousand years time from now but the point is they devour books in great numbers because they have the time well they read with an intensity they they, read with an intensity and their imagination is encountering things for the very first time it's it's very plastic it's receptive to them so you kind of feel it is this huge privilege and if children love a book they really tell you and if they don't like it they also really there's a direct (laughs) there's a there's a directness which are really you know when you do uh, do a children's event at a festival no child ever sticks their hand up and says this is isn't so much a question more of a comment really Uh, (laughs) so they just tell you how they feel and they ask very often very deceptively simple questions like you know you can be in a school and child asked me the other day do you think being a writer is a lonely job and I think that's a really profound question in a way because it's not lonely but it's certainly solitary and you have to kind of write on your own to kind of yet reach out to people so for a nine-year-old to ask that I think is 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 perceptive in a way that I'm not sure you'd get that at a grown-up festival. Now you're obviously very kind of well-read in the canon of children's literature and aware of what comes from where and what connects to what. Is that something you've sort of, as it were, done as homework, now this is your job? Or, you know, had you read all these, you know, 1940s and 1930s and 1950s children's books as you were growing up? It's, I have the benefit of having read a lot of this stuff growing up, so naturally I want to explore in it and develop that in in my writing. But I'm also, I've just got a strong belief, I suppose, that it's very hard because there is so much of it to make stuff original and I think you have kind of a have a duty I'm not saying I always succeed in it at all but certainly what is the point of adding to the huge floating sea of books out there if you're not trying to do something a little bit different so for example when I was doing The Last Wild I knew I wanted wolves to be in it because I love wolves and they they're freighted with so much mystery and menace but also they're endangered species you know they're extinct in Britain they're extinct in most of Europe so I made but I made a point and went back and read wolves and everything from Icelandic sagas to Red Riding Hood to the kind of bizarre now bizarrely colonial and patriarchal wolves in the Jungle Book who really come across as kind of government administrators (laughs) uh, more than anything else but also in The Wolves of Willoughby Chase and the Michelle Paver's fantastic Wolf Wolf Brothers series, which goes right, right up, up to Kate Randall, presumably. Yeah, well, and yeah. then right, right up to Kate Randall. So, because then I'm, and I'm not saying the wolves I created sit in that canon or stand outside it, but or I just meant that I wrote within the back of my mind, knowing that I wouldn't hopefully be repeating too many tropes, and yet also I would also at the same time be deliberately evoking tropes to play with them or test them. So just not not doing it by accident. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did uh, looking back at the. I mean, there's a lot of argument over, you know, 
various attitudes, should those be the imperialist wolves, the jungle book or whatever, that supersede. Do you, I mean, how do you judge the interaction between kids now and literatures of the past, children's literature, you know, because children's literature is so potent in forming how children see the world. Mm. Do you sort of look at some writers of 100 years ago and go, you know, actually this is this is not something kids should be reading now, the assumptions, or can you, can you just sort of divorce them from their ideological context? I think it's very difficult. Some books more than others. So Wind in the Willows, as I discover when I speak in schools, is definitely still read by children today. And I think that's kind of fine because it's about wildlife and animals. It, an astute adult critic will detect there's some quite strange Edwardian notions going on there about class masculinity women you know it's all a bit weird if you want but I'm not sure children get that I think the jungle book gets a bit more problematic because you simply are going into colonial politics and it's just hard to ignore this Indian child Mowgli who is basically rescued by the British government dressed as wolves and that is you know I think that is very difficult and I think it's even more difficult when there has been an increased awareness, has in, as in all literature, about just the lack of representation in different voices. And, you know, especially when I go into schools and I see across this country and I see an incredible diversity of children in every single classroom, whether it's in the countryside or the middle of an inner city, you go, I'm not sure if I was those children growing up, where are the stories that feel like they are about them or that they can happily tap into? that is being redressed but it certainly makes things you know a book I loved as a child was Tintin and it's Tintin is you know is really pro- I mean it's really tricky it's really <laughs> hashtag problematic. problematic hashtag <laughs> problematic with a big h for hashtag and a big p for problematic even though some of them are less so and there still remain fantastic examples of graphic asterisk writing. is okay isn't it because it's all um, is fine. you know anti-colonial yeah asterisk is anti-colonial <laughs> and yeah and and so humorous it's kind of skate skates over all that you mentioned also that i mean this you know c.s lewis's kind of grim situation was happening i remember when s bart wrote the children's book you know which which deals with the children's writer you know she said that what had inspired her was realizing that not only the lives of lots of children's writers but particularly the experiences of their own children was catastrophic. I mean, why Why is that, do you think? There's a kind of history of, of all these people. I think, I think to a degree, I mean, I suppose if you take the idea that all fiction in some way is an act of, rem- you know, act of remembrance, whether people choose it to be or not, children's fiction is often acutely spurred, I think, by, by some form of trauma. J.K. Rowling's famous story... C.S. Lewis had a pretty idyllic childhood in East Belfast, you know, view of the Green Hills. I mean, he had some strange antecedents of nutty evangelical preachers in his family, but by and large, life was pretty good. And then when he was about nine, his mother died of stomach cancer very suddenly and very quickly. And, you know, he wrote in Surprised by Joy later on that with that, all my memory of everything that was good and content sunk to the floor of the ocean like the great great Atlantis. And my contention with Narnia has always been is, as much as it's Christian allegory, it is also an attempt for him to try and... what the, the emotional spur, not the intellectual spur, is trying to reclaim that kind of fantasy 
childhood. And so I think if you're someone who's written a whole series of books about reclaiming a fantasy childhood, it's inevitable that there are going to be problems further, you know, on the on the on the other side. And what we call real life. Call what, what we call real 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 life. I don't. I'm not saying every every children's writer is writing from some place of pain, but I think almost any good children's book, if you ask the person who's written it, it comes from some childhood experience that wasn't entirely positive. And it's because I think I think the best children's books, what they're also doing, whether it's about fantasy or technology or Christianity or whatever, on a more basic level, they're always looking at the issue of of, of separation. And what they allow children to do is viscerally experience that before they before they have to, hence the quests. And so when they're really powerful and compelling, it's not surprising that they come from the kind of memory and psyche of someone who's perhaps had a less successful emotional separation. Yeah, some of what called latency fantasies, aren't they? This right. idea of, you know, it always helps if your protagonist is an orphan. Or, yes. Or yeah. similar. Yeah, you know, and there's someone... free from parental control. Someone once said, you know, every... Every year, all children's writers hold a minute silence for all the mothers they've killed in the name of a good story. <laughs> and that is honestly not because we're matricidal maniacs. It is because... That Noted. The child... <laughs> you say. Unless you say, yes. Uh, I've talked to my lawyers. But the, unless the child hero has true agency, you know, any good child reader can spot a sap a mile off. <laughs> and you know, there's no pulling the wool over their eyes. It's like, well, why don't they just go and ask their mum? Good point. Yeah, get rid of the mum. Yeah. God, you're a ruthless lot. Um, <laughs> Here we are. Now, it being this time of year, we should end by just talking, you know, the frozen seas, got this sort of wintry frozen thing. Narnia, obviously, a lot of, lot of snow in that. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. is it about children's books and Christmas and winter? Well, I think it's several things. I think it's that, I suppose, in... in in A Christmas Carol, which I sort of date as the first sort of classic children's Christmas story in the way we understand, although it's not specifically for children, because some of its themes of debt and human redemption are maybe not quite on their radar, it is also the first time travel story. It's effectively the first Doctor Who story, and it's the first Christmas ghost story before M.R. James. But he creates this sense of the warm hearth and the cold outside. The the animating scenes in Christmas Carol that cause Scrooge the most anguish are the Cratchit Christmas and his nephew Fred's and the dances and the games. And that's because Dickens... Well, he's peeking in from the outside. He's peeking in from the outside. It's the face up against the window. And it creates this tradition of Christmas stories where you want to be inside the window, misted up, the curtains drawn, the fire going. That's what John Macefield completely takes forward in the 1930s when he writes The Box of Delights. And... What he then develops, though, is not just this sense of Christmas games and Robert tea and Punch and Judy shows and party hats and the rest of it by the fire, but exploring, I think, a much something much older than Dickens, which is that sense of the midwinter feast and that kind of menace in the woods, something very, very primeval. And, and something nasty in the woods is the basic fairy tale it's trope, the, isn't it? It's the, it's the basic fairy tale trope, whether it's the wolves are running in, in the Box of Delights or it's the White Witch in C.S. Lewis's Wasteland. It's this sense of what a good time to be safely inside with a book when outside is dark and and cold. And I think Christmas offers great opportunities for reading, sort of leisure, home time. So it's a time when people read, and I think they'd like to... I mean, 
I think people always like to read things that also like whether it's a book that reminds you of where you're on a holiday or a book that reminds you of it being Christmas. So what Susan Cooper does is the dark is 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 rising. I think it's that it's so what what's really interesting to me is that Dickens doesn't invent Christmas. Obviously, that has Christmas is being vented around him by Prince Albert and Christmas trees and cards and all that stuff, that Victorian sense. But it's it's how a Christian, it's really how through children's stories a Christian festival becomes increasingly much more exciting as a pagan mid midwinter one. So the dark is rising is all about the Walker is abroad and ancient ancient forces, because I think again children have that ability to sort of tap into what lies underneath all the kind of ritual jollity that there's something older going on and these stories allow them to kind of access that in a safe way so they're reading it by the fire but they shiver a little because they know outside walkers are abroad wolves are running ghosts are being summoned and it's cozy in here with your book (laughs) you mentioned the box of lights you did a Christmas adaptation of that. Is that on this year? Because it was revived last year. No, so, th- so this year I've adapted Christmas Carol, but with a female Scrooge. And where is that? Uh, that's, on, that's on a Wilton's musical, where Box of Delights was on, until the 4th of January. Excellent. Get your tickets now. Yeah. And also, don't forget to buy The Frozen Sea, which is a terrific story that your children and you will enjoy. Piers Torde, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening. And please join us for our next episode. <laughs>